0: Welcome to Our Journey.
1: Our journey toward a more perfect union. Our more perfect union is an experiment, a grand experiment in something we all cherish. Democracy. Welcome to our Radio Roundtable with higher education consultant, Dr. Michael Walker-Jones, Harvard's Executive Director for Health and Human Rights, Dr. Natalie Alinos, and from Beacon Hill, Representative Jeff Roy, as we, the people, celebrate the journey of America toward a more perfect union.
2: Welcome to a more perfect union. I'm Nick Remesong joining me this week from our radio round table of regulars uh, we have our representative on Beacon Hill Mr Jeffrey Roy representative Jeff Roy we also have a guest this morning Ted McIntyre who is president of the Massachusetts Climate Action Network and has been very active in uh, certain legislation that uh, has put um, Mr Roy s- squarely in the lead for our annual, Hero of the week award yay jeff yay jeff yes yay, jeff. <laughs> also chiming in there with a yay jeff is our oh, station manager week. peter j
3: it's only worthy of a week well we
2: well we, you we know build, we have a we short attention span yeah yeah we build from the week we look at a month and then you know we'll, we'll keep it in consideration you're peaking early though that's the problem
3: you know this you... is like being on community auditions you win one and they send you to the regional uh
4: program
3: <laughs>
2: Uh, yeah, so, so you may uh, be in Connecticut soon. That's OK. True. <laughs> Excellent. And uh, what we are talking about today um, is a very topical issue. Climate change. How is it impacting on us? How is it impacting on the world? And we are again, Ted McIntyre is very, very well versed in this and has worked uh, kind of in the background with uh, Representative Jeff Roy on the new bill. That was just signed by the governor a couple of weeks ago uh, for cli- I mean, impacting climate change in the state of Massachusetts. And I'd like to ask you, you know, again, congratulate you, Jeff, on a fabulous job getting that through. Hard pressed, I know you had to make some uh, some concessions. But in your speech, you talked about how that is how business is done, and it's how you serve both the heart and the passion, which is something that's vital to I know uh, Mr. McIntyre to Ted. So, if you could just kind of give us a a lead into what's what what seems to be changed, what you know, what the bill entails.
3: Sure, thank you, and uh, it, it's great to be here. And I, I'm so glad that Ted is joining us today. I've known Ted; uh, it's got to be going on uh, 20 years, and um, I remember the first climate presentation uh, that he did close to 20 years ago uh, when we were meeting as a Franklin Democratic Town Committee in the uh, the town hall and uh, was fascinated by the topic and uh, the depth of knowledge that he brought to the table. Um, and uh, I'm blessed that uh, in my committee work, I chair joint committee on telecommunications, utilities, and energy, which is the committee that does uh, all of the major climate uh, legislation for the legislature in Massachusetts, and uh, I was given the opportunity in February of 2021 to take the lead of that committee, and immediately turned to my dear friend Ted and said, "Ted, let's talk about uh, what we're going to do." And you know, a year prior, uh, a year prior to that, uh, we had met with a group of, uh, of activists over at the uh, senior center who were looking. Uh, for ways that we could improve the climate in Massachusetts and uh, a number of steps that we could take. And, uh, you know, I remember we uh, also did a, a presentation at the Elks where uh, I brought in one of my colleagues who had filed a, uh, an energy bill and Representative Marjorie Decker came in, talked about her legislation. Ted did his, uh, his scientific talk, which uh, if you haven't seen it to date, Um, You ought to see it. And uh, Ted, just to give you a heads up, I'm working with the folks over at Dean College uh, to actually do a climate presentation to the students and the community sometime in the fall. Uh, And hopefully uh, you'll be available to join me on that panel.
0: I would, and, Jeff, I would be thrilled. And let me just say, in passing, I feel like I'm on a panel discussing Shakespearean plays, and Shakespeare is with us. So it's hard for me to, 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 <laughs> to you know, I, I will follow your lead. But man, I so much appreciate the work that you've done over the years and the commitment to what is a hard sell. I mean, a yeah. climate, not everybody likes to talk about it because it, people usually envision it as uh, eating your peas, right, uh, cleaning your plate at dinner kind of thing. And uh, you've done a great job of pointing out the opportunities and basically coming up with a bill that matches the scale and scope of the issue, right, which is really Really remarkable. So I uh, I am thrilled to be here. And if you want to go to Dean College and make a presentation, I'll be right there at your side.
3: I appreciate that, and uh, we will definitely set that up. But uh, you know, let me set the stage for what we did uh, and uh, the bill that the governor signed. It was actually seven days ago uh, that he signed that bill. So I took over the committee in February of 2021, and at the time we were. Uh, we had a a climate roadmap bill uh, which set some goals for where Massachusetts was going to be uh, leading up to 2050, where we expected uh, Massachusetts to be net zero by 2050. I'll get into what that means. Uh, But uh, as soon as I got the appointment, uh, uh, the speaker had uh, indicated, he said, I hope you've been following the progress of this legislation because it's been sent back to us Uh, by the governor, uh, with uh, a number of amendments. And if we don't deal with these amendments, he's going to veto the bill. And uh, so he goes, I need you in real uh, short order to straighten out uh, that bill and get it back to the uh, House floor uh, as soon as possible. And uh, I'm happy to report that we were able to do that work in five weeks, uh, get that bill back to the House floor. And on March 26th, of 2021, uh, the roadmap bill was enacted into law. Now that set the goals for us to be uh, net zero by 2050, which meant that we had to get away from uh, uh, any types of fuels for energy that emit uh, carbon uh, into the atmosphere and which contributes to the global warming. So uh, we're giving ourselves uh, 22 years, uh, 28 years uh, to reach that goal and uh, set a number of parameters, asked the uh, the administration to come up with a new uh, stretch energy code that would help building uh, uh, builders to understand what they needed to do in order to get to net zero by 2050, and a number of policies that were put into place.
0: Jeff, but, if I could uh, just jump in for one, one second. I, I, I want to... Before we get too far away from the concept of the roadmap, I just want to point out how valuable that exercise is uh, and continues to be. That the there are very few public policy, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, right, you would know better, Jeff, correct? I mean, where the, the state takes a 20 year vision or a 30 year vision, right, and plans to, towards it. And that's in this instance, the state has done that. And what it provides is we say a roadmap is essentially sort of a plan and goals and aspirational stuff, but it is also, and this is the thing I've become more, more interested in it. It's sort of a narrative. It's a story about what the state is doing that people can grab onto, right? The roadmap is this sort of, you know, star Wars myth of the, the, you know, the, the honest state seeking to, to save itself. And it's a great thing. And so when we talk about the roadmap, you know, there's a lot of detail, but the the essence of it is that the state has set this long-term goal that we should all be following, and and it is an ongoing process, right? Literally not going to stop even in 2050, uh, but it's it's a remarkable thing that we've set a, a, what amounts to a 30-year goal in an environment where most of the time we just look to the next election. So again, good on your, uh, your, your bill, but it's, it's, we say roadmap, but that means a lot. and It is an important concept.
3: No, and I, and I appreciate that. And please uh, jump in anytime during this because uh, I, I can go off uh, on a tangent. But uh, so we, we, you know we have the roadmap in place. And then the next step is how are we going to get there? What what measures do we have to put in place in order to achieve those goals? Because every five years, uh, the administration has to look at how we're doing uh, and what progress we're making, and it's actually broken up into subsectors and have to determine how we're doing with each subsector and come up with a plan for the next five years. So uh, in order to get this to all work, we had to uh, make some other measures in place. For example, and uh, I'm going to urge everyone at home uh, who has a phone to get the ISO app on their phone. Uh, ISO is uh, the entity that uh, controls all of the, uh, the energy usage for uh, six states, and Massachusetts is part of ISO New England, uh, and Ted and I visited ISO New England just about a month or two ago. Uh, to see how they chart where the energy is coming from and where uh, where uh, it needs to be brought online to make sure that we don't have blackouts.
0: So if you look at the ISO, Jeff, I could just the ISO, just independent system operator ISO New England. okay, and it is this sort of gray, opaque uh, sphinx like organization that's mandated by the federal government right but they sit on top all of the regional state and they make important decisions so again i think uh, uh, jeff is headed in the right direction to think about these iso ha- iso independent system operator in choosing how we're going to get our electricity and making plans has an enormous impact and so they right. deserve attention <laughs> uh, from right. the state
3: so you know w- we look at that and if you bring up your iso app and i happen to bring it up uh, so uh, it's in real time, and it gives you a sense of where the energy is coming from. So, if I look at it at this precise time, we're at 9:42 a.m. on Thursday, August 18th, 2022. 55% of the energy that's being used in these six states is coming from natural gas. 30% is coming from nuclear. 12% is renewables. 3% is hydro. So, in order for us to reach the net zero goal, by 2050, we have to get rid of 55% of the energy uh, from natural gas. That ha- It's a fossil fuel that uh, is, is emitting carbon and uh, warming the planet. So how do we do that? Well, Massachusetts happens to be geographically situated next to a pocket of the most robust wind In the entire contiguous united states and that's located 14 miles south of uh, martha's vineyard and uh, when uh, as soon as we were done with the roadmap bill the speaker asked me to focus my attention on offshore wind and developing an offshore wind industry in massachusetts that could be that robust source of energy that would replace the uh, natural gas that we rely on that's imported through pipelines coming in from other states. The advantage of offshore wind is that we have robust wind off the coast of Massachusetts, and we can be energy independent if we harness all of that wind through a series of turbines. And uh, luckily, a lot of work has been put in place to set up leasing areas, which are set up by the federal government. They have auctions, they sell leasing areas, and there happen to be uh, seven or eight leasing areas in that uh, area 14 miles south of Martha's Vineyard that are beginning to develop a a series of wind farms. Now, Massachusetts has already broken ground uh, at Covels Beach and Barnstable for the first utility-scale offshore wind farm in the entire United States. So we're already ahead of the game. Those uh, uh, initial 62 turbines will be providing wind energy uh, as early as 2023. There's gonna be enough power from those 62 turbines to power 300,000 homes. It's gonna create 3,600 jobs. And it's equivalent of taking hundreds of thousands of, of vehicles off the road annually. It's good, clean, robust energy. So our goal with the next set of legislation was to uh, develop an offshore wind industry in Massachusetts and and try to make Massachusetts the focal point for offshore wind in the United States. President Biden, uh, when he took office, set a national goal of 30 gigabytes of wind energy by 2030. With the farms that we have off the coast of Massachusetts, we are in a position to provide one third, over one third of that national goal. The lease areas that are in place already can supply 11 gigawatts of wind power. And that's incredible. And nobody else is doing this in the United States uh, at the scale we are doing it. So we ought to dive in Fully into this effort and develop this industry in Massachusetts. So uh, a large part of the bill is developing through incentives, through tax credits, through uh, workforce development, uh, through changes in the procurement methods to establish Massachusetts as the go-to place for offshore wind in uh, the United Jeff, States. Jeff, if I, if I could just jump problem. in, I mean, I,
0: to, to yeah. reiterate, just, I mean, a different way, maybe you would use the statistic yourself. It turns out that, as everyone is fully aware, there's no fracking in Massachusetts. There are no coal mines. There are no oil wells, right? But we that means in the current state, to get that 50% natural gas that Jeff was referring to, we essentially send 20 billion dollars out of the state of massachusetts each year to go somewhere else to buy that so exporting 20 billion dollars a year right if you keep that 20 billion dollars a year in the state you have the multiplier effect where that 20 billion dollars builds the massachusetts economy notwithstanding the further benefit that jeff pointed out that if you have the industry and the workforce here there's this enormous economic benefit of having the wind the 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 wind industry centered in massachusetts that you know so we say energy independence it's a very concrete thing for massachusetts because we really could stop sending 20 billion dollars a year out of state to buy uh to buy fossil fuels and so that's another way to think of the benefits of having and and again, just to reiterate, if we're setting a thirty gigawatt goal nationally, and Massachusetts can provide ten gigawatts, I mean, what the heck? When we, why would you not? Why think twice? Right? This is such an opportunity.
2: We're speaking with Ted McIntyre, who's the president
1: and board member of Massachusetts Climate Action Network. Well, beyond that, it speaks to the notion. Uh, this is Peter J. Uh, it speaks to the notion that. If you look at the national scene, we have for so long agonized over energy independence at the national level as both a national security issue as well as an economic issue in terms of a balance of trade. And so it makes sense to mirror the national concerns at the state level where what we are achieving is the same level of energy independence, where, in fact, we given the numbers that you're talking about, Ted, we end up exporting energy if we could generate that much of it. So along with the creation of jobs, along with the added efficiency in our economy, we end up moving toward a statewide net plus uh, with respect to uh, income generation overall. Uh, And that usually leads to easier ways to manage Things like government expense, potential tax reduction, the the, the benefits really ripple around. I, I want to also just rewind a little bit because we're talking a really big picture here, and much of that is originally outlined in the in the roadmap legislation, in a way. And and there's a great old management tenant, and I think Ted, you'd really appreciate it. If you can't measure it, you can't manage it. You know, that's a saw that goes way back. And the roadmap legislation, particularly with what Representative Roy mentioned about this cyclical five-year review, where are we now, where are we going, where are we now, where are we going, that gives us the opportunity to not only look at this benchmark legislation, but also to figure out what is working within it, what do we need to add to it, how do we continue, operative word, continue the fight for climate change, against our roadmap to make sure that we remain on track going forward over the decades over this almost 30-year plan so there are two things that we're looking at here we're looking at the roadmap and we're looking at how we have rised to meet that roadmap with the work that chef has done Uh, there's also by the way just an interesting aside we know at the national level that the bill that we have now the inflation reduction act which includes so much climate change benefit that was a really long slog in Congress, but it got done. What do you mean? It was only
3: forty years.
1: I know. That's what I'm saying. You know, forty years is the blink of an eye in glacial time. But <laughs> which, by the way, the glaciers are melting. If you hadn't noticed. So, <laughs> but um, need a rim shot over here. <laughs>
3: but it, it is amazing that it did take that long. And, yes. Uh, and I and we're sitting here and talking about. Uh, the fact that we did two major pieces of climate legislation in one legislative session, exactly. And uh, you know that uh, and, and and let me share with you the context within which we did this. So um, the House passed its version of this bill uh, on March third of 2022. three days before we took this up on the House floor. Uh, the United Nations Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, IPCC for short, they issued a report showing that uh, climate change is is rapidly reshaping the world, including New England. And and they noted in that that we are on the front lines of a climate crisis and said, if we're going to minimize irreversible impacts, we have to make unparalleled changes, including the creation of clean energy. So that's the context one context. I also point out that last November 2021, voters in Maine approved a ballot measure that blocked plans to develop a transmission line to deliver hydroelectric power from Canada to Massachusetts and the rest of our region. That shut off a robust supply of clean energy. That case is pending before the Maine Supreme Court. We expect a decision any day now, uh, but there was an enormous amount of power that was shut off to us. And then the third thing that occurred around the time we did this bill in, in March was uh, in Ukraine, with Russia making threats to gas mm-hmm, supplies. Mm-hmm. And, and that reminded us of the urgency and dire need for energy independence. So that's the context, and we did it. And, and when I was looking at what pathway we should take as a commonwealth, I embarked on a on a research effort, and this is probably April, May 2021, and spent six months meeting with experts, uh, stakeholders, uh, advocacy groups, uh, professors, scientists, all with the goal of preparing a state of offshore wind industry report that I presented to the Speaker of the House in October of 2021. It was 120 pages, single space, dense with charts and graphs. And folks had said to me, you cannot give that to the Speaker of the House. He will kill you. I said, no. I said, we had conversations about what we were going to do. I think he will appreciate this. So I I handed him this book uh, that was bound, and uh, I waited patiently for a couple of days, I said, uh, either he's going to kick me out of this job and find somebody else, or uh, uh, or this could go in a different direction. Well, he called me uh, several days later and he said, it's amazing. That's exactly what I was looking for. And I had uh, written a series of recommendations of what legislation we ought to put in place in order to move forward with uh, this industry. And he said, get a bill going. Let's uh, let's do a tour of the, uh, the small wind farm off of Block Island down in Rhode Island. Let's go down there. Let's bring uh, members of the House of Representatives. Let's show them what uh, the wind industry can look like in Massachusetts. And let's make an announcement on that boat trip that we are going to do uh, an offshore wind and clean energy bill in this session. And that's how it really kicked off. And uh, it was an incredible, uh, incredibly successful event. And uh, then uh, he also suggested let's make that report that you did public. Let's let people see exactly the thought process that was used to go into this and let's share with them where we uh, uh, intend to proceed. And, uh, you know, over the next uh, couple of months, uh, we wrote a bill. Uh, we brought it to the House floor. The Senate did their version in April. And then from May 5th up until uh, July 31, the House and the Senate conferees, I was the lead for the House and uh, Senator Michael Barrett was the lead for the Senate. Uh, we met weekly, uh, sometimes daily, in to talk about how we could merge what the House did with what the Senate did to produce what I think is a a landmark piece of legislation Mm -hmm. that will be a model uh, for other states. I I, I think you're right.
2: I think you're right, Jeff. And and Ted, you had something you wanted to add on that? I
0: was just going to say, I think that the, the underpinning, so Jeff's report, and correct me if I get any of this wrong, Jeff, but I mean, the, the, the concept behind all this, if you look at your ISO app, right. It says 50% of the, of our, our, electricity is generated by, Uh, natural gas. Fine, fine. That's 50% of the electricity we're using today. But we envision um, a, 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 a world where everything is electrified, right? There's a buzzword that says, electrify everything. Right. What does that mean? That means you're not burning natural gas in your home to heat your home, which is not electricity. Right. That's just natural gas. You're going to replace that with a heat pump and then you're going to stop buying gasoline at the 7-Eleven and you're going to have an electric vehicle, which means you need a whole lot of electrons. Right. (laughs) And you need to get those electrons to where the people are. And that I think is so. So one of the it's not it's more than a buzzword, but the concept of everything being electrified, everything being electric with the presumption that all that electricity comes from clean power is the subtext, I think, for the for the, the bill that Jeff has pushed, which is number one lots and lots of wind turbines, lots and lots of green power offshore, plus lots and lots of thought about how to get those electrons from George's Bank or wherever it is, or Block Island into downtown Boston. I mean, those are two separable and really important issues, but they all serve this idea that we have to get off electricity. We need even more electricity than we are currently making, right? Would you agree, Jeff? Is that a fair description?
3: Yeah. And and look, we're looking for clean sources of energy. And, and it's not going to be just wind. Uh, you know, we have a robust solar industry in Massachusetts, a lot of solar farms, a lot of solar panels on homes, that's producing uh, tremendous amounts of uh, electricity. And a lot of uh, that solar energy uh, that's being produced now is not really accounted for on the ISO app because it's behind the meter. So, uh, you know, we need to modernize our grid so that we can account for uh where all this energy is and how it's moving in multiple directions so one of the other components Jeff, if
0: i could just jump in before we go too far from i mean you said behind the behind the fence so just if you're iso mr iso in your control room right or ms, ms. iso in your in control room she's looking out she is asking how much energy do i have to produce in order to satisfy all the demand right but as it stands now hidden behind in some on top of your Walmart not on the grid is a bunch of solar panels effectively that reduces the demand that iso sees because you're using the electricity in place so there's this whole thing that we're building solar panels but they're not like tracked publicly by iso so it's it's sort of a hidden thing and that's why I think the bill that jeff has proposed would go to modernize that kind of thing so we understand where all these solar cells solar panels are and they're integrated into the into the full electricity grid so we take best advantage of it right jeff
3: absolutely and and part of the uh, another piece of the puzzle that we did with this legislation is to do uh, a grid modernization uh, advisory council that is going to look at these issues so that we can incorporate all these uh, sources of energy. We are also funding research into other sources of energy. Uh, We have a very exciting prospect up at Devon's in Massachusetts right now called Commonwealth Fusion, which uh, is producing fusion energy that will be a game changer. If they can uh, get that science up and running, Uh, they are actively looking for a spot to put their first power plant. And uh, so I look at that as a source of energy. I look at uh, hydroelectricity coming down from Quebec as still a possibility. We may not get through the state of Maine, but uh, perhaps we can get through uh, the state of Vermont. That's still a prospect because there's incredible energy that's being generated in northern Canada. Uh, we could use.
2: We're speaking with Ted McIntyre, who is the president and board member of the Massachusetts Climate
0: Action Network. Down here Jeff, in Massachusetts Jeff, tell me, tell me, if part of the bill also addresses something called battery storage, I think, yep. which is an important component. And it is it's a confusing one to people who may not be tracking closely. But I mean the the oldest complaint about solar panels is that the sun goes down at night right i mean that's the most obvious yeah so, we, we tried to do something about that um
3: but uh, the right, power
0: right, of the, the, the legislature the, to control
3: the sun uh <laughs> we, we don't extend that far
0: but the next best thing is to have mechanisms for, for storing electricity literally and, and in this case a battery is not your laptop battery it's any technology that stores energy and converts things back to to electricity so it could be you know water power you pumped up a hill it could be a 80 ton block of concrete that you slowly jacked into the air and then you let come back down but that's an important component and the bill i think supports a lot of that uh sort and, of um, technology you know,
3: as well right we we uh have a whole uh component a couple sections dedicated to energy storage to uh you know make sure that uh, we are developing. Uh, ways to store that energy because of the intermittency of uh, both the wind and the sun, and it's uh, it's funny you mention uh, you know uh, different types of batteries. We have two enormous batteries in Massachusetts. One is called Northfield Mountain, and the other one's called Bear Swamp. And uh, so what they do is they take water from the Connecticut River. They pump it up to the top of these mountains when the when sun ice, shines. Where the sun right, is with shining. excess
0: power, right? When right. they don't need the power, they they're, use that. They're as doing well. it. You know, uh, put on the pump.
3: Right. They're using excess energy to pump it up there. It's a massive reservoir at the top of the mountain. And then when ISO has a demand for power and there's no other source, they call up over to Bear Swamp or Northfield and say, "We need you to uh, generate some electricity," and within ten minutes. They open the floodgates, that water comes pouring down the mountain, spins the turbines, and they can generate uh, electricity uh, for up to eight hours. Those are the world's largest batteries. And in addition to those, we have these lithium-ion battery Mm -hmm. storage containers that uh, are cropping up uh, throughout the United States. But storage- And and
0: there's new technology. I mean, there's one Massachusetts company, I I can't plug, but I mean, they have an iron based technology which is cheap and easy for on-site storage right i mean there's energy
3: in uh, in somerville
0: there's all kinds of ideas Mm -hmm. and they i guess the point i'm heading to jeff is that the grid of 2050 will be significantly different than the grid we have today and constructing that grid is going to be a in, not a, a incremental process where we learn, we do, we learn, right? Because there's not going to be more power plants, but there's new opportunity, no more coal plants or gas plants, but there's new ways to do things. So when we encounter problems with constructing this new grid, we just have to solve them, right? It's a technical challenge and we have ways to do it. Uh, but And I, I think, think, again, I think one start. of the ways
2: we have to do that is uh, a guest I want to announce who's just come on, one of our radio regulars, Harvard's Executive Director for Health and Human Rights. Joining us from the Ionian shores of Greece, I believe, Dr. Natalia Linos. Good morning, Dr. Linos. How are you?
4: Good morning. Sorry I was late. And I am joining you. um, I'm actually going to turn my camera so that you can see that I'm looking out onto the water and there are about 20 windmills in front of me (laughs) across uh, the water. I I bring that up because the wind here, you know, the and there's solar panels in the house that I'm staying at, and, you know, it's not something that, you know, the United States, the technology here in Greece is, is behind, but on the sort of the green energy, a country like Greece has the sun, has the wind, and, you know, it's, it's worth it, so... Anyways, I wanted to make you a little jealous as to where I was. Well, not to leave.
3: You've succeeded. um, You've succeeded. You've
0: succeeded, yeah.
3: Yeah. (laughs) You must uh, take some pictures. I want to see pictures of those uh, turbines and how they look, because that actually looks spectacular to me, and people don't like the look of them. That's why they're 14 miles off the coast of Martha's Vineyard. But if you see any literature or or, or books out there that talk about the – Green energy. Could you bring some of those home? I would, I would love definitely
4: bring them home. Them. I will definitely bring them with me. And and I think they look beautiful. And you know they're not they're not destroying the sort of the the view that I have. They add to it a, a level of detail that is that is quite beautiful. And the kids like looking for them while we're driving around. So I will make sure to bring some uh, over. And I wanted to join you, even though I am on vacation, because this topic is so important to to me from from the health perspective. And I know right. that. know we've been talking about it from the energy and the sort of environmental perspective but clearly climate change um, is the next uh, public health crisis you know we're obviously in covid and you know we it's hard to think beyond that but if we've learned one thing about covid is that preparedness and prevention is so key so Mm -hmm. clearly transitioning to clean energy is so important for us to live healthy lives because pollution, the pollution that is emitted um, you know, through our fossil fuel burning is so harmful to us, to our children, and obviously to future generations too. So I'm really glad to join you today and sorry I was late.
2: And that's now, right, but the, I'm, I am just ecstatic that you've joined us because you have a, a, an area I wanted to explore a little more fully is the public health implication of resultant pollution of what we have now. And in fact, uh, it's very timely for me because I receive a, uh, an alumni magazine from George Washington University, and they, are, they have released several reports recently through the School of Public Health and the, legal, the law school about specifically about the pollution in Washington, D.C., and how it impacts the citizens there. D.C., like many cities, is divided into wards. You have your more affluent wards, and you have your less affluent wards. And one of the mo one of the least affluent wards in Washington is Ward Three. Ward Three reports twenty three times the rate of emergency room asthma visits in that ward than are reported in deeds uh, Ward Seven and Eight, which are the most affluent. And that is a result of they live where the pollutants, these are areas where the pollutants, the the source of the pollutants are more prevalent. They're the strongest, they're the, the least updated. And people are living in that area because there's where the jobs are and they have to be close to it.
1: And also, this is what
2: this is a result.
1: I also want to underscore uh, that if you just flash back two years, When COVID was beginning to rise up, one of the things we began to see are photographs taken from around the world of something that cities had not seen for perhaps decades, clean air. We were looking at cities in China where you could see out to the horizon, Los Angeles for the first time in how long was absolutely pristine, pristine. There was no smog to speak of because people stopped polluting just with the reduction of their activities by staying indoors because of COVID. Now, if you extend that to where we're going with clean energy, and let's underscore clean, when you do that, the public health aspect of that is, is really quite profound. You know, the, um,
3: some of the other pieces of this legislation, I think, uh, come in really on, on this issue, and that is our effort to move to green transportation. Uh, We up the incentives for folks to buy electric vehicles. Uh, We make it an unfair and deceptive act of practice for a dealer to sell an internal combustion engine after January 1 of 2035. We look for um, our public transit system to be uh, uh, emission-free, and we want uh, the META to buy uh, electric buses or or some other non-emitting fuel, uh, which will take care of uh, you know folks who live in these highly congested areas. You know will help them with their public health because buildings and transportation are probably your largest uh, sources of emissions. So beyond the transportation pieces, we move into building decarbonization, and uh, we're uh, requiring our larger buildings. Uh, to report uh the their energy uh, efficiency and emissions from their building we incorporate a number of changes to the mass save program if folks are not familiar with mass save that's the program uh, that you can call up and have come into your house and do an energy audit and they will offer you incentives to uh you know make your house more energy efficient through insulation or you um, highly efficient appliances right now you can still get uh incentives for uh you know gas uh, powered uh boilers but that's going to end uh in, in the next plan uh, in about 3 years there'll no longer be credits for fossil fuel uh power equipment uh, and but there are incentives to move you towards heat pumps uh and and other technologies and uh you know we're trying to get our buildings uh, moving along because buildings and transportation are huge components uh, of emissions. So this uh, bill goes a long way. And the final piece, which was probably the most controversial piece was allowing 10 communities in Massachusetts to be part of a pilot study Uh, where they could ban fossil fuels in any new construction or um, major renovation. And And I know
4: Brookline is one of those communities, right, Jeff, where I Uh, live?
3: Brookline is definitely, that's uh, Natalia's hometown, is going to be one of those communities that can do it. Um, I happened to join uh, Maya Wu at her press conference uh, two days ago, where she announced that the city of Boston was going to want to participate in this pilot. Um, I was a little reluctant to uh, join on to that effort to uh, allow communities to do the fossil fuel ban, but through the negotiations, we uh, limited it to a pilot study. We uh, Also, I was uh, fearful that it was only going to be rich communities that were going to do this, and they were going to push the fossil fuels into the poorer communities. So there was a uh, requirement that uh, in order for a community to be eligible to participate in the pilot, they had to be compliant with 40B, and that, that they had at least 10% affordable housing in their community. That was important to me uh, to doing it. And also that uh, there were robust reporting requirements and data collection about the effectiveness of these pilot programs uh, to deliver. And uh, up until the day before the governor signed this piece, This was the one area where he was seriously considering vetoing it because he was opposed uh, to this pilot program. And in fact, I remember reading uh, the newspaper the day before where the headline was that the governor had agita from uh, this particular provision of the bill. And uh, I actually texted him as soon as I saw that story. And I said, Governor, I can assure you, I share in your agita. But can you please sign this bill and let's do this together, because the world can't wait for climate action. Well, and 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 on the the poetic
2: note, which was brought up a few times, I'm going to give you a little alliteration. Uh, another uh, very insightful, informative, and intellectually stimulating. More perfect union hour has flown by, and it has indeed. Our conversation will continue next week. So we ask you to please. Stay tuned for more conversation on climate change. And we will have to say goodbye until next week. Now, if you would like to weigh in on our this discussion or any of our discussions, we'd be glad to hear from you. And if you have any information that you would like to add to it, or if you disagree, all the more reason to get in touch with us. And we, you can email us at info at franklin.tv. That's I-N-F-O at franklin.tv. And again, if you enjoyed our discussion, let us know. Or again, more importantly, if you disagree, let us know. All the more reason to let us know. And you can share or listen to this program or any of our past episodes. Our podcasts are available online at our website, wfpr.fm. And for Ted McIntyre, our guest, thank you very much, Ted, for joining us.
0: Thank and you for, for Dr. having me.
2: Oh, my pleasure. Our pleasure, indeed, believe me. And of course, Dr. Natalia Linos joining us late, but uh, still just a, a very welcome guest. And our representative, Jeff Roy, along with Pete J. Peter J. I am Nick Remesong. Thanks for listening and joining our shared journey toward a more perfect union. This is Franklin Public Radio.